Welcome to the Not Just a Pony Ride podcast, presented to you by Hedger University. If you've landed here, you're probably passionate about how horses help people. Whether you're an instructor, therapist, in the business, or have experienced equine assisted services yourself, we're glad you're here. Join us as we talk about the benefits, the science, to-dos, how-tos, and all of the reasons why what we do is so much more than just a pony ride. And now, from the Hetra campus in Gretna, Nebraska, here's your host, occupational therapist Katie King. Welcome back. This is quite an influential episode. Today's topic is something that's been requested a lot from you listeners. You really wanted to hear about the growing pains and the transitional years and all of the things that Hetra has really been through as we grew to where we are today. Which, by the way, if you want to request a topic or have an idea for a podcast, that link is in the show notes below. Uh, but anyway, today we have Edie Godden. She's Hetra's CEO um, and has been with us for 30 years. Hetra's COO, Erin Bevington, and she's been with us for 25 years. And Catherine Smith, she's an OT and the program manager with Hetra, and she's been with us for 26 years. They have a lot of experience, and today they talk about all the guts that it required to take the leaps of faith that we had to in order to grow our organization. Talking everything from really getting started to the jump from being a volunteer to being a paid staff and getting our first official property, it really is an episode you're going to learn a lot from. I know that it inspired me just listening to the experience and knowledge of these threes. Plus, they've known each other a long time, so it's a pretty fun dynamic. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is an exciting episode because I'm surrounded by effectively all of my bosses. So <laughs> I hope this goes well. No, I'm kidding. But I'm going to have everybody introduce themselves here. So Erin, why don't you start? Um, I am Erin Bevington. I am the Chief Operating Officer at Hetra. I've been at Hetra for 25 years this year. So I started, Edie kind of pulled me in. I graduated from college, Colorado State University. Um, I moved out here to marry Edie's brother and um, had a degree in equine science. So I had a pretty extensive horse background and um, she kind of pulled me in and asked me to start helping um, with Hetra and yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> Very good. So 25 years. 25 years. Hard to believe. All right, Catherine. Yes. Hi, I'm Catherine Smith. I am an occupational therapist and I've been with Hetra for 26 years. Edie and I worked together, I guess I've talked about this a little bit in a previous mm -hmm. podcast, but we worked together and she helped me buy my first horse. And so that's how I got to the Hedra Barn. Very good. And Edie. And I'm Edie Godden and I'm the CEO of Hetra. And I'm also an occupational therapist and a certified riding instructor and a clinical specialist in hippotherapy. So I've been with Hetra 30 years. So I started with Hetra back in 1991, um, actually as part of my senior occupational therapy project. And then um, after I graduated, stayed on with them at that point. So it's been an amazing journey. Well, so collectively, we have quite a few years of experience with developing this wonderful organization that we all work for. And today I'm really excited to talk to you guys about some of those transitional years and those those big transitions that we went through from growing from what, you know, one volunteer or one participant and a handful of volunteers to what we are today. 
So um, I'm excited to hear all of the, the expertise and nuggets of knowledge that you guys have. We can talk a little bit about maybe some of those early years. I know some of that big transition that we went to went through was finally having kind of a place of our own because in the very early years, we kind of hopped around for a while, right? Mm-hmm. So um, way, way back when, <laughs> back in 1991, when I started with the organization, um, we had moved around kind of, we were kind of whoever would take us, um, we would uh, set up shop there and, and we would do programming in between their lessons or in, you know, in somebody's not backyard per se, mm-hmm. but somebody's barn. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an opportunity to work out of a really nice barn in Omaha for a period of time. So, so yes, we, we traveled around a lot, probably those first couple of years. That was great because it allowed us to get up and started and running and, and seeing people. Um, but we found pretty quickly there were a lot of limitations to that and, and not really having control over our environment was a really difficult situation. So that's when we um, decided to move out to the barn in Valley, which is actually my home, and decided to start really building the program more consistently because we had the ability to do that. We had the ability to control when we would do programming, what time people would come, what what was happening with the horses, how many horses we could have, all of those things. So that was probably the first transition. Uh, and I think it's important to note that that your barn, Edie, has an indoor arena. Yes. So that allowed for year-round, well, almost year-round at first, um, programming. So we didn't, we weren't so limited by weather. Right. So we run programming usually from March to November. Mm-hmm. So April sometimes depended on weather, but we we not run programming during the very coldest months because we didn't have heat in the barn for a period of time. <laughs> So in those very early stages, you guys were trailer, you know, trailering a horse around to see some of these participants or were they boarded at different they facilities? They were boarded at different facilities. We weren't really trailering any horses mm-hmm. in or out, but they were boarded there. Mm-hmm. Very good. So then once you guys set up shop in Valley, that kind of gave you guys a springboard to start making this more of a, a business with a schedule and employees and that kind of thing. Because at that point in time, you guys were all volunteers, correct? Absolutely. Right. And even still then, when we came here to Valley, we were still volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did give us the ability to set up a schedule. So I think initially we saw people on Tuesdays and then we added Thursdays and then we added Saturdays. Because y'all were all working full-time jobs in the same time, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> Yes, full-time jobs, full-time families, and, and, and trying to get this program up and, and running because we saw the benefit of it. And I guess if I can share just a, a quick story, um, my husband, um, who I met actually through volunteering at Hetra. <laughs> I didn't know that very interesting. Well, yeah, it was a little bit of a ploy on his part. We had known, grown up with each other in high school and and I'd seen him at a volleyball game and he said, oh, what are you doing? I, of course, talk about Hetra because that's what I'm passionate about. And he said, well, maybe I'll come out and volunteer. Well, I don't think he really ever really loved ah, horses. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. But he did love the kids <laughs> that, that we worked yeah. with. But um, he, he, you know, it was a busy life. Like we had family and, you know, farm and horses and, and the program and full-time jobs. And, and he would say, you know, you got you to gotta get a better you got to get a better balance. You got to get a better balance. And, and so I'll never forget one day I, I, I walked into the garage and, and he said, Hey, I got to talk to you. 
I just talked to this guy and he's got, he's got a gal, a little girl. She's got some, some significant issues. I think she could benefit from coming to Hetra. When is as soon as you can get her in? No, it's like, okay. So that conversation we had about balance, <laughs> let's put that, let's put that to bed. And, uh, now you see what the poll is because that was the poll. You know, we had a waiting list and, and we'd be contacted by families and we knew they would benefit from coming and, and participating in the program. And, and so we are constantly pushing to grow one more step, one more student, one more group of volunteers. And some of those early families had more than one child that was that had disabilities. So mm -hmm. when a family contacted us, sometimes it wasn't just for one. Mm -hmm. I think that's important to note because the benefits and the differences that we see in our participants are what keeps us going. And that's what makes those those big changes, those big, you know, leaps of faith, like you said, Erin, like so much easier decisions to make because of, you know, the difference we're seeing in our participants and the passion for it. I think probably the underlying theme for us has always been, well, there's not another option. It's like we're going here because there's not another option. The option to fail is not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's clearly evident through everything that we've been through and all of the growing that we've done. So when when you guys decided, you know, you kept having people reaching out, you know, do you have time for so-and-so or so-and-so? And you're like, well, you know, I can see how this is going already. You know, yeah, I do, but I got to work my nine to five first and then I can do it, you know, so... When did you guys make the leap to say, you know what, let's do this full time and let's let's pay some folks to do it? I think it was a very yeah. slow leap. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like tomorrow we're going to pay full time. But I'll yeah. let Erin talk a little bit more on that because I think when she came on board. That yeah. Was really... So surely after I came on, um, Edie needed somebody to manage the book. So Edie is an, an amazing, passionate person and her programming <laughs> skills are amazing. But um, and she's built her business skills over time, but that's not her forte. And that's kind of my passion. I mean, obviously I have a passion for horses, but um, I enjoy the business and administrative side of things. So when I came on, I kind of started to to take on that role and, and doing the billing and managing the books. And I think I may have been the first paid employee. I was being paid a couple hours a week to, to manage the books. Um, but that was kind of the leaping off point, um, you know, started, Hey, maybe we need a logo and maybe, you know, I have a passion for the color red. And so <laughs> I brought in the color red, ah. um, which is, uh, um, kind of carried through over the years. And, um, you know, we started marketing and making flyers and making a t-shirt and, you know, um, I think that, you know, at, it, it Petra is a nonprofit. But we also run it as a business, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's that's important because I think a lot of these organizations get started um, with somebody that's super passionate about serving these individuals. But the business side is just as important mm -hmm. um, to make make a nonprofit successful, um, and I think that that can be a challenge. And and I think that's been part of our success as well is that we know where our strengths are and we know where our needs are. And so through the process, we've said, okay, here's where our, our next biggest need is. And so um, as we started to grow and pay people on a part-time, I think we were paying our instructors on a part-time basis um, and, and starting to really want to make that next leap. We knew we needed somebody in charge of the development piece, the grant writing, the fundraising piece of things. Because again, Aaron's great at the administrative side of things. You know, Catherine and I have the programming side of things handled. We really need somebody that can 
really grab a hold. And again, we started with somebody part-time. Um, I think we got some funding to bring that person in for um, a few months and, and they were willing to take the leap and, and did so and to the point then we could bring them in on a so basis. Was that how you first so in the transition from you know, from everybody's a volunteer to let's pay some people, was that all started by grant funding? Did you guys, you know, do some fundraising? Did you get a loan or how did that work, you know, to really get it started? Um, you know, it started I think when I started doing billing, I think, you know, charging, um, we were charging minimally, but we were charging enough to help cover some of our expenses. Mm -hmm. um, and then once we, we felt like it was time to really start paying our employees, you know, bringing the development person on was the next big leap. And we kind of said, okay, here's two, we, we got a grant. So this person was a volunteer at that time, helped us write a grant to get her salary for a few months. And then you know, we said, okay, you've got two months to, you know, bring in the funds to get your salary, but then to get the rest of us, you know, paid, you know, as well. And, and I think that was a huge, a huge jumping off point to, to really start sending us down the road. Um, our big first big fundraiser <laughs> was um, our what is now Blue Jeans and Dreams. At that point, the first year it was our it was called a musical benefit, <laughs> and we had a, a I think it was like a little bar mm -hmm. and grill that um, was there was nobody operating out of it at the time, and they allowed us to use the space, and we brought in a couple of bands and um, we had food catered in. We, it was like a buffet type deal and. Um, a few people came and um, in the middle of the event, um, we had a tornado come to Omaha. <laughs> On the first event? <laughs> the first event. Yeah. So it was quite an experience. Um, I was rather um, traumatized. After that. I was like, I never want to do this again. But I clearly lost out on that as this year is what our 25th. Um, this year is, our, I think, our 25th Blue Jeans and Dreams. So um, it's certainly progressed over the years. But I think that was our first big big event we did some small like garage sales we did a garage sale at Catherine's place and um but yeah that our musical benefit that was our first big event but we learned through those early things that that having a bunch of little things like garage sales and bake sales and this kind of thing was not going to be sufficient to get us to where we wanted to go mm -hmm. that we needed to do you know put more effort bring in the expertise of our financial people and, and others so that we didn't just nickel and dime ourselves, that we could make some money that we needed so that we could spend the rest of the time on our programming and doing what we're here to do. Mm -hmm. So when you guys were doing all this fundraising and you got a grant for, you know, someone to come in and do some of those development things, you know, everything's swimming right along. What, you know, did anything ever happen where you were like, huh, we don't have enough money to do this or that, or were, were there any roadblocks when you when it came to fundraising and doing some of the, those things early on? I, I think there's, there's always roadblocks, even today. And I, I think there were some very lean times. Mm -hmm. and, and the fortunate thing that we had is we basically had a facility that wasn't costing the program anything. Mm -hmm. So we could float on that for a period of time if we needed to, and, and we did, um, both at our facility and We'll talk to when we moved, you know, to mm -hmm. the Omaha facility as well. And and that, I think, really allowed us to build our programming and build our staff um, up 
to the point that we could eventually take the bigger leap that we did. Mm -hmm. I think without that ability, with that having to maintain a facility, having to maintain all the costs of a facility um, in the early days, um, it would have been it would have been really tough. Mm-hmm. So we were able to really focus on the programming and bringing the people in. And and I, I say that's my superpower is I get really, I can attract really good, talented people to this organization <laughs> <laughs> and keep them here. <laughs> I can attest to that. I can. <laughs> so, um, and, and that's a huge thing because I think the people of this organization are our greatest resource, honestly. And they're what makes us take those next step and makes our programming superior and, and, and really quality for our participants. This episode of the Not Just a Pony Ride podcast is sponsored in part by Equiforce. Equiforce is a database that allows you to track every facet of your organization from horse, donor, and volunteer management to scheduling, grant tracking, incident reports, and tracking participant progress too. This is not a one-size-fits-all setup. Instead, Equiforce personally works with you to learn how your facility functions and takes note of your specific terminology so that they can create a unique system to match the needs of your organization. And of course, Equiforce provides an ongoing training and support so that your database can grow with you. Visit them at www.equiforce.com. That's E-Q-U-I-F-O-R-C-E.com. So I think Edie's always been an amazing visionary. <laughs> and she's um, great at, at seeing what could happen. Um, and I think setting goals, um, and it has been a big part of our success is, okay, we want to reach this goal as, as a team, we've decided this is a goal we want to reach, or this is something we want to do. How are we going to get there? Um, and, and backing up and saying, okay, here are the steps we have to take and the things that we have to do. And here's a budget and, you know, breaking it into smaller steps, it it becomes much more realistic. Um, and it's easier to get everybody on board, Mm -hmm. um, to reach those goals. And that's how we've operated back from way back when, you know, you guys remember the first time we talked about having a strategic planning meeting and it was like the scariest thing oh, ever yeah. and we brought in some people that knew what they were doing and I'm it was like it, it was difficult to do that to sit down and actually write goals you know and they said where do you want to be in five years and we're like oh, we had the a, a 10-year plan of having our own property you know Hetra having its own place for years and years um, but it was there I will say all those smaller goals in along the way that uh, that taught us all a lot. Mm -hmm. I think that speaks a lot to the development that you guys have put into your staff too, because it's like like you said, Edie's a phenomenal visionary, you know. And then it's like then we have to have people like you, Erin. That's like (laughs) okay, that's really great, but then what are you know what's the budget or what what are the smaller steps to get there? And um, that only happens if you have a little bit of everybody to keep it going. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the other, um, the other fun thing that that's, um, happened throughout the years, you know, when it was just a couple of us, we were all wearing a lot of hats and doing things that weren't necessarily our strong suit or within our comfort Mm -hmm. zone. And so it's been really fun. Um, even since we've moved to Gretna, just, you know, at that, when we moved to Gretna, we had full five full-time employees and now we have 13. 
um, but to be able to relinquish some of those things that are not necessarily in my mm-hmm. wheelhouse and watch somebody take those on and like, you know, see the vision of, of what I wanted to happen, but mm-hmm. I didn't have the skills to make happen um, has been incredibly rewarding. But it's difficult at the same time. If you've been doing those things yourself and you've been doing a good job, and then you have to turn those reins over to somebody else, Mm -hmm. even though you know they're probably going to be good at it, to let go of those things, is that's that's hard. It it is. It's very hard. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second because we're all, um, like, I feel like horse people, ag people in general, like, that's super hard because we do we we go out to the barn and I don't have anybody to help me do chores so I'm going to do every stall today and I'm going to do it myself and it's fine I don't care that's the way it is <laughs> you know it's just like we just are so self-sufficient that like making that leap to decide to hire somebody to help you with this vision or this passion that you have is is a really really hard thing and, and I think along with that comes the letting go of this is only my vision. This mm-hmm. is now the group vision. Mm-hmm. And this people are going to take things and go in a direction that maybe we didn't initially see, but think, wow, you know, this is adding some great, you know, great, you know, input back to the organization. So I think when you give people the freedom to, to kind of come in and, and take some things on, it's been really cool. I think the other thing that's really cool. Um, that, that helps us all within the organization right now is like I served as the volunteer coordinator for a period of time. Aaron served as a volunteer coordinator. And <laughs> Catherine probably served at least in somewhat in that role. Um, we moved to the to the Omaha barn, and mm-hmm. so Catherine was a barn manager and a, and a horse manager and and you know managing all aspects of that program. From her standpoint, so we, we've all, we've been instructors, all of us have been instructors, Catherine and I are therapists, we are actually still both in the arena because we just couldn't give that up, but I think that helps us understand like when there is a problem with volunteer coordination or with the horses, we understand because we've been there and done that. You did it, yeah, absolutely. So you kind of just mentioned it a little bit, I think, to one of the transitions that we've talked about a lot is it's easier to to give up some of those things and um, to start using the vision for your entire group when you felt a little bit more recognized as like a legitimate business, which I think happened when you moved from like your private property here to having, you know, its own standalone place. And when did that happen, that big transition? That happened in 2014. Um, so like Catherine mentioned, you know, through strategic planning and, and lots of conversations, we had always had a dream of having Hedra having its own facility. Um, and, you know, we had kind of gotten to the point where we had a waiting list. We didn't have any more um, spots open. It was, and at that point we were operating two separate facilities. They were about 20 minutes apart. Um, managing horses at both those places—that was that was a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, horses and horses, and volunteers, volunteers, resources at both facilities, and and I think so. So one was Catherine's facility, and one was my facility. And I think one of the things that you know, Catherine and I were saying to the organization is, what happens if we're not here? Like that wasn't mm-hmm. ever the intention. But what if what if something does happen? then half of our program shuts down like that that's 
that could be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. So we really have to think about where where the organization can go and be successful um, beyond the people sitting around this table. Yeah, sustainability has always been a huge a huge thing for us. You know, Edie and I and Catherine may not always be with the organization, but once we move on. Um, you know, our plan is for Hedger to still be here for, for many years down the road. Um, and, you know, having our own property was a huge, a huge part of that. Um, and that making that was, you know, we've taken a lot of leaps of faith at Hetro over the years, but that was the biggest one we ever, we ever took. Um, and honestly, the stars aligned um, in order to allow us to make that leap. We had been looking at properties. Um, we had an amazing, amazing board of directors at that point that was helping guide us and, you know, had some connections to the community. You know, we um, had looked at a property we thought was going to be ideal and that fell through. We were all kind of really pretty devastated that that didn't happen. And then um, this property in Gretna came up and um, it was not necessarily in the market yet. Um, they were open to doing, you know, a couple year lease while we raised funds um, and then we had the honor of, of becoming a recipient of the Mustaches for Kids um, organization here in Omaha. Um, and that year they um, raised upwards of $250,000 for us, wow. which was incredible. So um, we, like within a six week time span, it was probably the most crazy six weeks of my <laughs> life. Um, we um, found this property in Gretna, um, we were told we were going to be mustaches for kids um organization for that that year um we had blue jeans and dreams and then um like three days after blue jeans and dreams we moved um oh, so <laughs> we uprooted um both facilities um you know took all the horses and and moved them to this new property and we got there we're like we don't own a pick we don't own a muck bucket we don't own a wheelbarrow like all of those things belonged to the individual facilities and right the we private residences like, you were in yeah, so like we had very few assets at that moment in time <laughs> other than our, our people and our horses so um it, it was having that mustaches for kids money was was huge because we had to buy a tractor and we had to buy uh, you know manure picks and we had to buy wheelbarrows and <laughs> Um, a mini truck. Um, yeah, we bought our little mini truck and, and, um, gosh, that thing came in handy. We had a good time in that. Um, but. This isn't Mitzi, is it? Yep. Yeah. Mitzi. 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 She hasn't. So listeners, just so you know, our, our feed truck has a name. Her name is Mitzi. <laughs> it's a little Mitsubishi mini truck and, um, you drive on the wrong side of it and it's, <laughs> It's a hoot. <laughs> but thank God we had that thing because at that point that facility seemed so huge to us, like getting around it. And, you know, we were constantly like chasing each other around the barn, trying to find each other. And I can't imagine how many steps we all put in that those first few weeks when we moved. But And there was a lot of work to be done at the facility mm -hmm. um, yeah. to, to bring it up to the code that we needed for our participants and our um, and our programming. So there was a, a lot of things that we had to do. and. And we brought two groups together that were very different cultures. So the Omaha barn, very type A personality. Oh, very left brain. Everything yeah. was organized. Okay. Everything was labeled. Okay. Well, and you've been to my barn. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. I see that there was maybe a conflict or two when we moved in. Right and left brain barns. There you go. Merge. And, yeah. and really, we did it very, very well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very well. 
Yeah, it really, but we had to establish all new policies and procedures because things were different and workforces got turned out. It was different. Well, we actually didn't have any turnout pens at that point because there was only, I think, like one functional turnout pen. Yeah. One of them had a hole so big you could drive a truck into it. Yeah. But the barn, when we first bought the place or, or moved into the place, had 60 stalls mm -hmm. and one bathroom. <laughs> one one toilet. toilet, yeah. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you can imagine bringing two barns together and all these horses. Yeah. The physical situation, mm -hmm. yeah, with yeah. the issues with turnout pins and all that. So yes, we had a lot to or do. Or the water. So there was no water except for there was one hydrant at the very what is it that southwest yeah. end of the barn, and yeah. there was no water to the turnout pen. Yeah, so even if water we tanks. turned yeah. out horses, we had no ability to give them water. We had to <laughs> problem solve all that. We carried water buckets. Oh, yeah. So we this did. sounds like a lot of facilities grants that happened, maybe. There was a lot of grant writing that happened. And obviously the mustaches for kids funds, you know, mm -hmm. took us a long way. But, yeah, there was a lot of grant writing and a lot of amazing organizations that came out and, you know, helped us. Um, Boots on the ground. projects. And, yeah. And, um, yeah, amazing volunteers. So our, yeah. our core volunteers that came from both programs, they dug in and and really helped us get set and and successful. But we started. I can't remember. Were we down for four weeks for programming? It wasn't think, very long. No, it was, like we yeah. were like we're not going to be down very long. We're mm -hmm. be down this amount of time, and then we're going to start programming on this date and. And we did it, but yeah. it was a it was a push. And you know that nice, beautiful tack room we have now. Mm -hmm. Well, our tack room used to be in the instructor office. That was our whole tack room, mm -hmm. which is like seven by ten feet. Yeah, yeah it's it's tight in there. <laughs> uh -huh. So you can imagine if that was your, in, if that was your tack room, mm -hmm. what that looked like. That's <laughs> crazy. I mean, it was very so very well organized, and it has to be when it's that small and you have that many people, but. It was tiny, so. So yeah. when you guys moved, because you came from private properties, mm -hmm. so when you moved, did how did you decide what horses came with you, or how you know? I'm assuming the herd was obviously quite a bit smaller than it is now, but sixteen. I think we had, yeah, oh, we had eight, so not that much smaller. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We were seeing about eighty people a week, between eighty and ninety a week between the two properties. Mm -hmm. um, so the horses were already designated as hetero horses, mm -hmm. so they were there either on long-term lease or they might have been Catherine's or, mm -hmm. or my horses that were devoted to the hetero program. And so, um, you know, if that was their main job, they, they came along. There wasn't anybody that I don't think didn't, that come. didn't come. No, I don't think so. But But it was very interesting to see how... The horses adapted to the oh, new barn too. Right. Some that we thought were just going to be just fine, no matter where they were, did not like it at, as yeah. well at mm -hmm. first. And others were just eh, okay. This yeah. is my new office. Mm -hmm. And and that's one of the things I think from our standpoint that changed. So moving from a smaller facility to a bigger facility, like I think these horses have to like people anyway. But I think. The horses at our facility have to love people and they have to love attention and they have to love having people around them all the time and and we did find that we had a few horses in our herd that 
that we're not going to make that transition. Didn't make that. They they started and we did everything we could, but they just didn't make that transition. Because so you effectively doubled the people because you were working in two facilities. Now everybody's at one, so it you know that's double the number of people that were handling them. On the yeah, and all yeah. Of that. yeah. Interesting. So some of them we we um, moved on to other jobs mm-hmm. at that point and and learned quickly about when we went to look at new horses, who was going to be successful. Uh (laughs) So when you having a horse manager now, that's that has all the horses in one place and she's very, very skilled. We used to have to rely on older horses that had kind of been there, done everything. And now with, with the advantage of having, a very skilled horse manager who is around all the time mm-hmm. and has the time to work and train, we're able to have younger horses. We don't take four-year-olds into the program, mm-hmm. but um, you know, yeah. we, we don't have to wait until we get a horse that's 25. This episode is also sponsored in part by Wooden Horse Corporation and the Equisizer. The Equisizer is a handcrafted, non-motorized, mechanical horse used by equine assisted service programs worldwide. The Equisizer requires no electricity, tools, or maintenance and can be used indoors or out for evaluations, warm-ups, stretching, mounting, dismounting practice, and volunteer training, beer, and build confidence with students, clients, and volunteers. It can easily carry the weight of two adults, offering the unique option to ride tandemly. To learn more about the Equisizer, visit Equisizer.com. That's E-Q-U-I-C-I-Z-E-R.com. I'm assuming that, you know, when we're, when you're operating out of, you know, your private properties, you kind of both were functioning as the horse manager because you live there and that's your property. So was that someone that you hired pretty quickly? I served as horse manager for quite ah, a few years. For both facilities. For both facilities. So okay. we would have horse conditioning, I think one day a week in Omaha, one day a week in Valley. And I would go back and forth and work horses. I had a volunteer team that would do that. Um, now our horses are getting worked three times a week. We have course conditioning three times a week at, at mm-hmm. our Gretna facility. So, um, that definitely went up a notch, but that, that it was a huge challenge to keep our horses mentally, um, and, and physically, you know, conditioned, um, at, at two separate facilities. That we're yeah. talking about we did have another kind of, we've transitioned some mm-hmm. part-time people into that position, even when we were at the Omaha Valley barn. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was one of the struggles. It mm-hmm. definitely is one of the harder things because the expectations and the toys and the things at the Omaha barn were different than the mm-hmm. Valley barn. So right. the Omaha barn had these cool beads that hung from the ceiling and um, the Valley barn had the lift. And so we had different, different tools and different things at each barn. Um, and we also had different skills of volunteers. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I think when we initially made that transition and, and split, um, a lot of the core volunteers that have been with us a long time stayed here. Mm-hmm. And so they had a little bit more horse experience. So we could take the horses that were a little bit more um, challenging, little, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of guys. And then Catherine also had at her facility her three amazing horses that we were able to put into programming and they were super, mm-hmm. super successful with that. So that was very helpful, but just that training of volunteers, um, mm-hmm. it's again, another whole thing. It's like two, when we train volunteers now, right, we have one training, mm-hmm. we get two training, right. <laughs> depending on where you are going to come. So 
when you moved in at Gretna, you had five full-time staff. So it sounds like probably if they weren't already, you know, a volunteer coordinator and a horse manager, a single horse manager were probably a couple of uh, the first employees that came on once you got to Gretna? Yeah, so I think when we moved to Gretna, we had um, Aaron and myself, and then we had a full-time volunteer coordinator. I think we did have a horse manager and then development volunteer person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, mm-hmm. and, then and the development person. Yep, mm-hmm. that, that was, was the five, five of us. And like like they said, like we walked around that facility and went, what in the world will we do with all this space? <laughs> you know, oh my gosh. And and now just mere, what, seven years later, we're like, we need more space. We had, yeah. a, we literally had a meeting yesterday to talk <laughs> yeah. about where we can put more things. So, it's so we are bursting at the seams already. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like, you know, right now, I mean, what you, that was seven years ago we moved into Gretna, mm-hmm. you know, about every... 10 years or so, it sounds like we go through a pretty big transition. So where do you guys see Hetra now? Do you feel like we're kind of in a in a period of transition now for going forward? Where do you see us in the future? I think we've been in transition for 30 years. I mean, I don't think we've ever sat back and said, well, this is, this is enough or this is because I think there's more people to see and there's more populations to treat and there's more techniques we can use and we can do like equine assisted learning and equine facilitated cycle. I mean, there's just so many things we can do. Um, so I think, yes, we're always in transition and, and yes, I feel like we're going, I mean, I think COVID forced us into a transition to virtual programming and to developing some of our ground-based programming a little bit more, which was great. We had some time to do that. We brought Katie and Diane on, who have been terrific in helping to develop that. Um, But I think we're always in transition. I think bringing on a mental health therapist who is also a veteran has been a big step. And the programming that she is also helping to develop, that's going to that's going to, or it's opening up avenues that we had previously really not felt like we could, Mm -hmm. but oh my, that's going to expand things a lot. Yeah, we really see that program taking off right Mm -hmm. now. The mental health and the veteran programming is really taking off the life skills programming. Now that, now that things are starting to open back up, we're starting to see people come back to that program as well. And I think too, there's a lot we've discovered there's a lot of funding out there right now for those programs because those are kind of hotter topics um, as far as that goes, like the veteran programming and the life skills programming. And so that's that's helped tremendously grow those programs as well, I think. And I believe mental health has been such a focus of our society recently mm-hmm. that, that it's not here yet. We don't mm-hmm. have, have specific money for that, but that will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's super exciting to say that we have a development department. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. For many years, we had one person. So we now have, we now have three people dedicated to um, marketing and, and fundraising, which is, I think, again, helping us reach a lot of these programming goals that we're, we're trying to reach, too. And it, it really has allowed us, who are more passionate and have the knowledge of the programming piece, to step out of that role um, and, and step back into the programming role. And I think since we've been able to do that, we see these programs just starting to really grow mm-hmm. and explode, which is awesome. And I think that goes back to, you know, back in the early years, like Aaron said, we wore a lot of hats. We had to, and, and, and you do that. 
and then you figure out what it, what is it that you're good at? What are you passionate about? And what can somebody else come in and do? Mm-hmm. And we've been able to make those transitions over you know, the last 25 years and then find those people to come in that are really good mm-hmm. at what they do and that just takes you to the next level. So I'll ask you, I'll ask all of you as well to kind of weigh in on this, but I think for me, what I hear in sitting down with you guys and talking is that for some of those programs that are going through some of these transitional years um, or are smaller and trying to grow and that type of thing, um, having faith. And also it's just sounds like surrounding yourself with the right people to help develop your program in ways that it needs to grow and staying super honest with yourself, right? And this is the first time I think in the last couple of years where I feel like my job is really solely what I love to do. (laughs) And I don't have those things. I mean, again, there's been many, many years where we've all done things that we've had to do to get us where we're at. But there are things that, you know, are kind of at the bottom of your list because you dread it. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I feel like finally I'm able to to do those those things that I'm really good at and that I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have other people that are doing those things that um, that I wasn't super passionate about. Yeah. And they're amazing at it. Mm-hmm. So I can genuinely really say, I think I can genuinely say everyone on our staff truly, truly loves their job. And that is so many fold for so many things. I mean, it, it makes our organization stronger, a happier place to be around. And when people are happy at work, they stay at work, they want to do well. And it, it's just, it's all the way around is, is really helpful. For me, I'd say that the best piece of advice would be to set your goals mm-hmm. and, and not only your short-term goals, but your long-term goals and, and goals for things like programming, but also for your fundraising Um, And make sure you're checking back in on those goals and where you're at. Make sure you're transparent with your team. Like, this is where we need to be in order to get to this next step. Um, And I think being willing to grow yourself is huge because, um, like Erin said, like, I'm an occupational therapist. That's what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about the horses. Um, I'm not passionate about business stuff, but guess what? I know a lot about nonprofit business and nonprofit leadership. <laughs> so, and, and that didn't come by just, you know, osmosis or whatever they call it, just being yeah. here. It came, you know, by actively pursuing information and surrounding us with people that have that information and, and being willing to learn the things that maybe I didn't really like looking at a set of financials. Like, is that something any of us really want to do? Not really, but it's so... Well, Aaron would disagree, probably. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't mind it. But it's something we have to do in order to, you know, be able to take, you know, that next step and understand. Um, I can't just rely on my finance committee or Aaron to rely on, you know, to know that information. I have to know that information as well. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that, that is really important is that people must understand their culture. They, they have to be aware of their culture and, and the kind of culture that it's going to take to advance the program. Um, if, if you have a dictatorial culture where one person is calling all the shots, you're not going to have a team like we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we have worked very, very hard to grow our culture and to have a very positive culture at Hetra. And, and that requires sometimes to let somebody go that's not part of that or that's that's I, I hesitate to say causing problems but those kinds of things happen mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you have to be assertive enough to be able to 
deal with that well and 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 preserve your your good culture Mm -hmm. spending as much time on you know what programs could we add you know to our programming as and spend as much time doing that as you do developing your team and your staff that's Mm going to put on that programming i think is important and your team's not just your staff it's your volunteers as well because Without those volunteers, we, we could not function. I mean, I think 22, 25,000 hours a year is, is a typical number of volunteer hours for us. And, and you know, we can't obviously pay staff to do mm-hmm. that. So <laughs> it's amazing. Um, having the amazing group of volunteers we have has really been huge in getting us to where we're at. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting kind of close on time here. Does um, I think we'll just kind of wrap up. And is there anything you want people to know that are listening. I know we want to touch a little bit on, you know, how we can help others, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the initiatives that we've kind of taken on as a group is um, being able to share information with other programs like ours. Um, We feel like given we've seen every stage of this game, (laughs) this point, we've seen it from the startup to you know, lots of transitions to tough times, to good times, um, that we have a lot of expertise to offer. Um, so we are going to be starting a kind of a consulting arm of, of our program to offer to other programs to help them, um, you know, advance in, in where they're going and, and hopefully not have to learn the tough way, not have to learn to reinvent reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a benefit here in the Midwest that, you know, we don't have a lot of programs that like that, that are willing or able to maybe offer that to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have such a diverse staff, you know, too, that I think we're all very well versed in what we do and we love it and we want to share it with people. So, um, you know, and everything from, you know, marketing and, you know, administration and billing to programming, you know, we can, we can really wrap our arms around a lot of that. Yeah. Grant writing, fundraising, Mm -hmm. capital campaigns. (laughs) We've had experience in all of those areas. Very good. Well, I'll put the link to some of that information in the show notes if you guys want to check that out. Thank you, Katie. Yes. Thank you for joining me. This podcast is presented by Hetra University, an educational arm of the Heartland Equine Therapeutic Writing Academy. Hetra University's mission is to provide high-quality educational offerings to our participants and the equine-assisted services community. Craving more content like this? We invite you to check out our series of webinars and much, much more over at hetrauniversity.org. If you'd like to help us work toward our mission, you can make a donation by clicking on the link in the show notes below or visit us at hetra.org. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Again, my biggest thanks to you all for helping Hetra change lives one stride at a time.